for almost two years, and um, what a blessing it is to be here. I met Lance actually in seminary. We went to start the seminary together ten years ago, and it took me six years, almost five and a half years to get through seminary. It took Lance ten years, so I always say I'm a little bit smarter than Lance. It only took me uh, five and a half years, but um, no, it's, uh, it's it was a great time to get to know Lance, and it's now been fun to be able to serve here with him. Um, at at Bridgeway, and this last week has been a fun week. You guys saw the video of Kidsway, and I think we have a picture to show you uh, how I got to participate in Kidsway this last week. That's my wife and I, as King Candy and uh, and Princess Lolly. So we got to engage with all of your kids, and uh, thankfully I'm not wearing that up here today. But uh, we had a lot of fun engaging with the kids this week, and to see the joy, to see the fun, uh, to see these guys and girls engage with. God and learn about his great love for us and uh, what a blessing that was to be a part of uh, what a great ministry it is for our kids. Um, I'm going to start off this morning and ask you guys a question. I want to know if I was to ask the question, do you believe God loves you? What would you say? Yes? Probably 99% of you would say yes, we believe God loves us. In fact, you know, my daughter can sing the song, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we've probably learned that song. But if I followed that question up with another question and said, do you feel God's love on a regular basis? Do you feel it deep in your heart? Do you experience that love regularly? I don't know if all of you would say the same thing. In fact, when I was sitting in the seminary class, our professor asked those two questions to 25 people studying to be pastors, missionaries, evangelists, chaplains. And, of course, everybody knew, had knowledge, that God loved them. The Bible says that all over the place. But when he asked the follow-up question, he said, do you believe or do you feel God's love? Not everybody in that room raised their hand. In fact, about 20, 25% of the people in that room raised their hand and said, yeah, we feel it. We experience that love. In fact, I was one of those people that wasn't able to raise their hand. Yeah, I knew God loved me. I knew a lot of stuff about the Bible. But I couldn't honestly say that I had experienced that love, felt it on a regular basis. And through that class, we went through some passages of Scripture to understand what is that love? What does it take to move that love, that knowledge, the head knowledge that we have up here down to our heart? And that's what I entitled today's message is embracing God's love, moving from the head to the heart. Emotions are a funny thing. And we often get wrapped up in emotions and we think emotions are bad or feelings are bad. But God gave us emotions and he gave them to us because they're good. Now, we can use anything in bad ways and we see that all the time with things that are very good, but yet we use them for bad. And yet God is an emotional God. He has anger. He has love. He gets frustrated. Jesus wept the shortest verse in the Bible and we see emotion all over the place. And when he created each one of us, he created us with emotion. But so often we look at Scripture and we read Scripture as just words on a page. And we don't get to let that head knowledge move down to our heart. And that's my goal today, is to take you through a passage that will hopefully illustrate and demonstrate how great God's love is for us this morning. And let you maybe for a fresh way take a new look and really let that sink in. Do you need a Bible? Raise your hands. We have Bibles out there. So raise your hands, and, and as they're bringing uh, the Bible to you, we're going to look at Romans chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans chapter 5. And as you get those Bibles, it's on page um, 798 in the church Bible, 798. So Romans chapter 5. 
And we're going to look at uh, this passage a little bit. And as you're getting those Bibles, let me just share one more illustration to, to kick things off with. If we tell our wife or we tell our husband, I love you. And we say that every day of our life, I love you, honey. I love you, honey. I love you, honey. If we don't do anything to show that type of love, eventually those words are going to fall on deaf ears, aren't they? And we can read those words. God loves us. God loves us. But if we don't see that, if we don't experience that, if we don't let those words transform who we are, we're missing the aspect of how great God's love is. In fact, when I told my wife that I loved her when we were dating, I waited till I knew that she was going to be the one that I was going to marry. Those words were so significant for me. And I didn't want to say those words until I knew for, 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 forever that I was going to be able to say, I love you. And so I decided to do something really special for her. She had no idea. We hadn't talked about marriage at all. But I commandeered a private jet from one of my golf sponsors when I was playing professional golf. And uh, I was able to sweep her away. We flew up in this jet. And I came out of the back of the jet with a guitar in my hand. And I sang a song that I had written for her. I know all you guys are going, oh, my gosh, don't be saying that. <laughs> and I wrote this song that I sang, and the last verse of the song said, Forever, I want you to be in my life. Forever, I want you to be my wife. Forever, I want you to wear this ring. Forever, together, we'll serve the king. And I got down on my knee, and I put that ring on her finger, and, of course, she said yes. How could she not? That is showing, demonstrating the love that we have for somebody else. And this passage that we're going to look at today shows and demonstrates God's love in a way that speaks volumes. And I hope that it helps you move from the head to the heart. So let's take a look at this passage. Romans chapter 5, starting in verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith, into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out His love, His agape, unconditional, passionate delight love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the power of your word. God, take these words and move them from our head to our heart. Speak afresh in each one of our lives. Open our minds, open our hearts to hear you in a new way. May your Holy Spirit invade this place and teach us how to embrace your love. In Jesus' name, amen. The book of Romans is a neat book. Um, it's the Apostle Paul. He was writing to the church in Rome. And, uh, and he really, it's his longest and most extensive overview of the Christian life. And he lays out this beautiful, beautiful letter for people to understand what a relationship with God is all about. And in the first couple chapters of Romans, he says, why do we even need a relationship with God? 
And he says, because we're sinful, we're broken, we're imperfect people. And he says, it doesn't matter where you come from. Are you Jewish? Are you Gentile? Who cares? It doesn't matter. We're all on level playing field because we're all imperfect people in desperate need for salvation, for a savior, for a relationship with God that can restore us back to a God who created us for that purpose. And then in chapter three, he kind of transitions and he says, this is what took place. Jesus died for you. He sacrificed himself. He paid the penalty. And by faith, we can accept that. And then as he gets into chapter five, he says, these are the ways that we can enjoy our relationship with God, even though there's some very difficult things that we go through in life. The passage of time, these first two verses of chapter five, the problem of suffering and then the presence of sin in our life. And he takes these three issues and he says, you are worth more than each one of those things. And he defines love and he takes the great three Christian virtues, faith, hope, and love. And he says these three virtues cover the passage of time, the problem of suffering, and the presence of sin. So let's dive in here and take a look at what he says. Therefore, again, he's saying this is what just took place. I've just shared with you what this relationship with God is about. And then he reiterates and he says, since... We have been justified through faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The past is taken care of. We have been justified. That's the verb in the Greek language that says it's something that took place in the past that has continuing results on into the future. We have been justified. What does that mean to be justified? It means to be declared not guilty. Yesterday, or, uh, Friday, the last day of our kids' way, BBS camp, as Princess Lolly and King Candy got to share with all of our kids, we got to understand, how do you share with a bunch of kids that Jesus died for our sins and justified us? That's a little deep, isn't it? Well, we got to have them come up and interact and act out a little skit. But first we said, how many of you guys have ever made a bad choice in your life? And of course, everybody raised their hand. We know what bad choices are. And we explained that sin is doing something that God doesn't want us to do. We make a bad choice. And I said, how many of you guys have a consequence to your actions when you make a bad choice? And, of course, all the kids raised their hand. And so I asked for some of the, the, uh, the consequences that they have at home. And, of course, we had the timeout. We had the Nintendo gets taken away. No more video games. They got to go to their room. But no joke, this was the best response I got. Their consequence at their home was they get tied up to a chair. <laughs> I don't know if you're out here in this uh, audience, if you tie your kids up to your chair, God help you. But that was one of the, uh, the things that one of these kids had shared. So I said, it's really a bummer to have a consequence, isn't it? Especially that kid. And I said, what if somebody took the consequence for you? And all the kids said, wow, that would be great, wouldn't it? And I said, that's what Jesus did. He took the consequence for us. And then we acted out this little skit. And we brought up a little kid. And he played the role of a king. And then we had another little girl. And she played the role of the king's daughter. And then we had another little kid that played the role of the soldier. And the soldier was holding a uh, red licorice rope. And we said, this king was a good king. He was a just king. He was a fair king. And they looked at the Ten Commandments. And we said, we just learned about the Ten Commandments. And if you break any of these Ten Commandments, there's consequences to your actions. And the consequence of breaking into those Ten Commandments was three whips with a red licorice rope. Well, the little girl we brought forward, and we found out that she had stolen Princess Lolly's special little ring pop. And so, of course, we bring her forward, and we say, we know what the consequence is. It's three lashes with the red licorice rope. But then the king says, wait, that's my daughter. What am I going to do? If I punish her and I inflict that three whips with the red licorice rope, I don't look like a very loving father, do I? But if I let her go free, if I just forgive her, 
What does that look like to the rest of the kingdom? He's not a very fair, not a very just king, is he? So he got off his throne and he took off his purple robe and his crown and he wrapped his arms around his daughter and he said, start the punishment. And our guard got up there and just loved whipping (laughs) as hard as he could that little red licorice rope. And the little boy was saying, ow, ow, ow. He says, that hurt. And I said, do you think Jesus hurt when he hung on that cross? Yeah, it's painful. But he loves you that much. And he didn't just forgive us. He justified us. He completely wiped clean. So when God looks at us, he sees something different. He sees Jesus in us. He sees the righteousness of Christ in us. A powerful illustration of what that justification really means. Where does it come from? It comes from faith. Through faith, we have, been, we have received this peace with God. Verse 2, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace, this free gift, receiving what we don't deserve. Did that little girl receive, deserve to receive that? No. But her father got off and hugged her. Is that I'm giving you something you don't receive. I'm taking the penalty for you. But how do you receive it by faith? That's the word we see all throughout the Bible. Faith. Believe. Believe in God and you will be saved. Very different than what we think of as belief. If I say I believe in George Washington or I believe George Washington was the first president of the United States, all I'm saying is I am agreeing to a historical fact. If I say I believe in Jesus and that he was the son of God and that he even died on a cross, I'm just acknowledging that that was historically a fact. That's not the type of belief or faith that we see in the Bible. We need to transition it from that head, that intellectual ascent to agreeing to a set of facts, to a personal trust. In fact, this is best illustrated by a guy named Charles Blondin. He was a French tightrope walker. I don't know if you guys have ever heard of this guy, but he was a real guy who lived in the late 1800s, and he would literally tie tightropes across crazy things. In fact, one day, he tied a tightrope across Niagara Falls, 1,100 feet across Niagara Falls, 160 feet above the water. And he had thousands of people out there watching him do this, and sure enough, he walked across Niagara Falls, and the crowd was going crazy. And then he came back, and he says, Do you guys believe that I can push a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls? And they all cheered, and they said, We believe it, we believe it. And sure enough, he pushed a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls, and everybody went nuts. And then he said, do you believe that I can push a wheelbarrow across Niagara Falls with somebody sitting in that wheelbarrow? And they all said, we believe, we believe. And then he said, do I have any volunteers? Nobody was willing to get in a wheelbarrow. They believed it intellectually that he could do it. They even saw him do it. But when the Bible talks about faith, it says that we have to place our trust in that person, in that person who hung on that cross, that we have to be willing to get in that wheelbarrow and let Jesus push us across that giant chasm that separates an imperfect person from a perfect and holy God. And that's why Jesus went to that cross. And that's how justification takes place. That's how we get forgiven completely, is when we're able to place our trust. In fact, Charles Blondin's manager ended up coming out. He didn't get in the wheelbarrow, but he wrapped his arms around him, got on his shoulders, and he walked across Niagara Falls with his manager on his back, placing his trust in that person. Those first two verses talk about our past being secure. We have been justified. It talks about our present reality with the Lord, that we have peace 
because of that single act, if we place our trust, we now have peace with God, relational peace. We have a relationship with the living God. And then he goes into the next phrase here. He says, and we rejoice in the hope, the future hope of the glory of God, that there's something that we have to look forward to. Because of this relationship that we have with God, he gives us hope. Not I hope it'll happen, but a confident assurance in something that will take place in the future. The Christian life, the Christian faith is so different than other religions around the world. There isn't a lot of assurance or confidence. A lot of other religions are based about what we do, how good we are. And if we do enough, we hope we gain acceptance with God. The Christian faith is about giving us hope, confident assurance, because it's not about us. It's not about what we can do to earn it. It's about what Jesus already did for us. And he says, you have hope. My father passed away 12 years ago. My dad grew up, wasn't a Christian, struggled with alcoholism, was a great golf instructor, helped me play golf, was a great dad, but he didn't know the Lord. And seven years before he passed away, he went through cancer, he went through a heart attack, and two minor strokes. And God got a hold of his heart. And for the first time, he understood what Christ had done for him. He had given him a second chance at life. My dad placed his faith in Christ. He got in a wheelbarrow, so to speak. Jesus took him to the other side. He entered into the relationship. And when my dad passed away, I was able to stand up in front of the memorial service and share, I know where my dad's at. I have hope. Because God promises us that. That we can look forward to something better. And that's what he's done here. He said, your past is secure. Your present is peace. And our future is taken care of. We don't have to worry about the mistakes that we've made in the past. We can learn from them. But don't let them inhibit how you live your life today. And don't get consumed with the worries of tomorrow, where you're going to go when you die. If you place your faith in Christ, God says there's hope. A great hope. And then he says, not only do we rejoice in the future glory of God. But he says, we also, verse 3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings. That's hard, isn't it? It doesn't say rejoice because of our sufferings, but it says rejoice in the midst of our suffering. How do we do that? When you're experiencing brokenness, broken relationships, struggles in your marriage, struggles with your kids, being a parent for the first time and having a baby that's crying continuously. Struggles with addiction. Struggles with work. Financial crises. Losings of your houses. There's all kinds of things that we go through in life. The loss of a loved one. Those sufferings. That word literally means tribulations or pressing in of life. The pressing in on top of you. And God says you can rejoice in that pressing. Why? Because there's something happening. There's a purpose behind these things. When we go through suffering, many people say, God must not love me. Where is God while I'm going through this? Why is he letting this happen? And yet he says, because I'm doing something. I'm producing perseverance in you. Perseverance. What is that? My six-year-old daughter last year, when she was five, she was playing a little video game in the backseat of our car with her cousin. And 
I'll never forget this. Her cousin was trying to pass this little level, and she couldn't get past. You know how kids are. They get all frustrated when they can't pass this level. And so she's getting frustrated. My daughter says, just persevere. And her cousin says, what does that mean? And my daughter, the little theologian in the making, says, don't quit. Keep on going. Don't quit. Keep on going. God says, when you go through suffering, I want you to not quit. I want you to keep on going. I want you to persevere. I want you to push back against the pressures of life. And each time we go through something in our life and we persevere, God develops strength in us. And we're able to get through the next thing. And then we look back and we see, wow, look at God's faithfulness through that time. And then it doesn't stop there. He says the perseverance develops something else. It develops character in us. Better translated as proven character. Literally, it's proof. He is doing something in us. He is making us in who we are supposed to be. Our character is who we are on the inside. And when life pushes in on us and the pressures of life hit us, and the sufferings strip us down of all the things in our life, what comes out? The purity of who you really are. When I went through the struggles with golf back in college, everything was being stripped away, and, and I didn't share in the testimony, but my first thought was that question my youth pastor had asked me in my senior year in high school. Would you still be content if all your success was taken away? God was stripping it all away. And I had to say, will I trust you? He was refining me, like the refiner's fire that Peter talked about in 1 Peter. When he heats up gold, the impurities raise to the top. So the refiner can purify us and strip away all the impurities off the top of the gold. And then he turns up the heat a little bit more and the impurities raise up. And then he strips it off. What's the goal? To be able to see his reflection in that pure gold. What is God trying to do to us as we go through hard times? Refine us. So that when he looks into us, he can see a reflection of his son, Jesus, in each one of us. God stripped away so many things through that. When I lost my father, God stripped away other things. I couldn't rely on my dad anymore. I had to rely on my heavenly father now. I couldn't rely on my golf game. I had to rely on Christ to define who I was. I've been married for 10 years. Marriage isn't easy. In fact, I read a book called The Sacred Marriage. The whole premise of the book is marriage isn't meant to make you happy. It's meant to make you holy. We go through tough times in our marriage because God wants to refine us and grow us. And we start to see the selfishness and the pride and the anger and the little things that come up in marriage. And God says, I want to make you into the person that you're created to be, the true character to come out. I don't know what it is that you guys are going through, but God is developing perseverance in you. He's developing character in you. And he doesn't stop there. He says, I'm also developing hope. The same confident assurance that we get about heaven, he's saying there's a result. Christ-likeness is what I'm producing in you. There's a hope of something better. We can look forward to heaven when all of the suffering, all the pain, all the tears, all the sorrows will be stripped away, and we will be in that perfect, intimate relationship with the living God. That is the hope that we have. But while we're here... These momentary troubles, these sorrows that we're going through, I don't want to minimize them because they're huge. There's a purpose behind each one of them. That we can experience those things and say, God is doing something in us. And look what else he says. It's not just any kind of hope. In fact, there's a proverb that says, hope deferred makes the heart sick. 
If we long for something long enough and we hope for something, we never get it. We start to get sick. But the proverb goes on to say a longing fulfilled is the tree of life. This is the type of hope that God gives us. Verse five. And hope does not disappoint us. Some translations say hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit, whom he has given us. That word poured out. There's a lot of different images for being poured out. You can take a picture and you can pour ice water into a cup. That's not a very good image. This word literally means gushed out. In fact, I was up on the men's campout trip. How many men on the campout trip? A few guys out there. We went up camping. Last month, and we walked up to this beautiful waterfall, and because of the winter that we have and the snowpack, this water was just gushing out over the rocks and cascading down to the rocks below, and it was just moving through all the rocks. Nothing stops water. It's powerful. It just pushes stuff out of the way until it goes down. And as I sat there at the bottom of this beautiful waterfall, I was reminded of this verse. And I sat there by myself for about 25 minutes, just praising God. And I was just feeling the presence of God being poured out of heaven into my heart. And I experienced God's love in a new way. Because he didn't give us a hope that disappoints us. He gives us a hope that's objectively demonstrated by the Holy Spirit being poured out into each one of our hearts. That's the promise. And it's interesting because Paul hasn't really talked about the Holy Spirit in the book of Romans yet. And he gets to this passage and he uses this time to pick out, to say it's the Holy Spirit that has been given to you to demonstrate God's love in a very practical way. Oftentimes we think of the Holy Spirit as the force. We watch Star Wars and we think it's just this force keeping the balance between good and evil in the world. But that's such a misunderstanding of the Holy Spirit. In fact, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Three persons, yet distinct. And I know that's hard to grasp. I don't fully understand it. I went to seminary, and yet I still don't fully get it. But we have to understand that the Holy Spirit is personal. The Holy Spirit has emotions, just like we do, just like God does, because He is God. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can mourn. And He says, I give you this Holy Spirit. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, he says, I give you the Holy Spirit if you place your faith in Christ as a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance. That word for deposit literally means a non-returnable down payment. We make a down payment on a house. Why? So that if we renege on our loan, the bank keeps our down payment. Another word for down payment is an engagement ring. In the Hebrew culture, if you give an engagement ring to a woman, you would say, I love you. I'm demonstrating that love to you, and I'm coming back to you. Remember when Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you, but I'm coming back to bring you to that place? That's the image of the marriage in the Hebrew culture. We give an engagement ring as a down payment saying, I'm coming back for you. And God says, I give you the Holy Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing that I'm coming back. If God doesn't come back, we keep the Holy Spirit. He lives inside of us. He walks through that suffering and the hard times with us, showing the presence of God is with us. If Jesus never comes back, we keep the Holy Spirit. But he's trustworthy and he's coming back. Is that good news? It doesn't stop there. It gets even better. Verse 6. 
You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man or a self-righteous person who doesn't think they need God. Though for a good man, someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Go back to verse 6 there. You see, at just the right time. Two words in the Greek language for time. There's chronos, which is where we get the word chronology, which is the series of events that takes place in history. It wasn't the chronos time that Jesus died. It wasn't because it was the year zero when Jesus came into the world in 33 AD when he died or a specific time of the day that he died. He uses the word kairos, which is better translated as season. He picked a strategic moment or season of our lives to die for us. What was that season? He uses four words. While we were still powerless. That word often gets translated sick in the Bible. In fact, when Lazarus was ready to die, Mary and Martha ran to Jesus and said, Lazarus is sick. He's powerless. He can't save himself. He needs you, Jesus. You need to come and heal him. We need to recognize that we are completely powerless, completely sick, completely unable to save ourselves to understand the magnitude of what Jesus did. It was while we were powerless. What's the second phrase he uses to describe this? Ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. A lot of us will say, I'm not ungodly. I'm a pretty good person compared to most. I haven't done that many bad things in our life. Yet over and over and over again, Paul says, nobody is righteous, not even one. We are all ungodly. We have all turned away. And then he goes a little bit further. Verse number eight. While we were still sinners. That's the verb tense giving us a continuous action. While we were still sinners or continually sinning. Continually caught in sin. Not able to stop. And then skip down to verse 10. For if we were God's enemies... We were God's enemies. That's the strongest word in the Greek language for an enemy. It literally means to hate God with everything we are. Now, I know we would never say, oh, I hate God with everything I am. But yet, when we continually sin, when we're continually ungodly, we are slapping God in the face every single time. And you're like, why am I sharing this with you? Why am I trying to beat you up? Because we need to understand our depravity, our brokenness. To be able to understand what he has done to demonstrate his great love for us. The season of our life was while we were powerless, ungodly, continually sinning, and an enemy and a hater of God. That was the moment that he chose to demonstrate his great love. Let me personalize it. I want you to take a moment, as hard as this may be, to bring up your most embarrassing sin that you've ever committed in your life. Now I want you to share it with your neighbor. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Bring that to mind. That may be really hard, but this is what makes it personal. Bring that most embarrassing, that most shameful thing that you've ever done in your life. Whether it was the things that you spoke behind 
your friends back, the gossip that you shared, the struggle with addiction, the stuff you've been looking at on the Internet, the eating disorder that you may be struggling with. Maybe it goes even deeper. Maybe it's the business deal that went awry and you chose to cover it up and lie and cheat to make sure you covered yourself up. Maybe it was the affair that you've hidden for years and years and years. I don't know what it is, you guys, but bring it to your mind. And while you're committing that sin, imagine that there was a knock at the door of wherever you're at and you were caught. And you're just praying, go away. But the lock, the knock continues. And it gets louder. And it's not going away. And you realize, what am I going to do? And so you start to cover up whatever it is that you were doing. And the knock is still there, persisting. And so you have to go answer that door. And you go answer that door. And you open it up. And there is God the Father standing in front of you. But he's not looking at you with this look of condemnation. He's not looking at you with this look of, I can't believe you were just doing that. He's not looking at you with hatred. He's looking at you with the most compassionate, loving eyes that you have ever seen. And he says these words, I know what you were doing. I know every time that you were doing that. And I've been here every single time that you've been doing that. And I know that you're going to continue to struggle that in the future. Because you're powerless. You're unable to stop it on your own strength. But I want to take you for a walk. And he puts his arms around you. And he takes you on a journey. And you're walking with God the Father. And his loving arm wrapped around you. And as you walk, he looks up to this hilltop. And up on that hilltop, he points up there and he says, look at that. And he points up to a cross. And there's somebody hanging on that cross. And he says, that's my son hanging on that cross up there. And Jesus is looking down at you with those same compassionate eyes, that same look of love and forgiveness and grace. And God the Father says, that's my son. And he's hanging on that cross for that sin that you just committed. And he's hanging on that cross for every other sin that you've ever committed. And he's hanging on that cross for every sin that you will continue to commit. My son is hanging on that cross to demonstrate the love that we have for you. I didn't just give you the Holy Spirit poured out of heaven into your hearts. I gave you my son because you are worth my son, that's how much I value you. Scripture said God demonstrated his love to us in this way. While we were yet sinning, Christ died for us. There is no greater love than this, when a man lays down his life for another. Jesus did that very thing. He laid down his life while we were in our most embarrassing, shameful moment. Why? Because he loves you that much. Verse 9. For since we have been justified by his blood. His death didn't just demonstrate love. It justified us. Didn't just forgive us. It changed who we were. It completely freed us. 
How much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more having been reconciled shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice. Remember, we rejoiced in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoiced in our suffering. And now we rejoice in God. Why? Because in God, through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. We were enemies, and now we've been made friends. He's restored us. He's brought us back by his blood. There's a little girl named Liza. Liza was five years old, and her older sister, eight-year-old older sister, was dying of a rare blood disease. And the only way to help and to cure her older sister was to have a blood transfusion. The parents didn't have the same blood type. Only little Liza, five-year-old little girl, had the same blood type as her older sister. And so the parents went to little Liza and they said, Liza, would you be willing to give up your blood to save your sister? And little Liza said, let me think about that. And the little five-year-old went away and thought about that. And the parents thought, wow, she's really taking this seriously. That's awesome. And little Liza comes back to her parents and said, I'm willing to do it. I'll give up my blood so that my sister can live. So they hooked her up to all the the stuff with the doctor hooked up all the, the lines and they started the blood transfusion. And after a couple hours when everything was taken care of, and little Liza woke up after giving her blood to her older sister, her parents came in and said, thank you so much. You saved your sister's life. And little Liza looked up to her parents and said, when am I going to die? You see, little Liza thought that she was giving up all of her blood to save her sister's life. And that little five-year-old was willing to give up everything, to lay her life down for her older sister so that she could live. That is exactly what Jesus Christ did for us. He gave up all of his blood to save us. Not just to demonstrate love, which he did, but to change who we are so that when God sees us, he sees a new person. He sees Jesus through us. And that we don't have to worry about our past. We don't have to worry about where we are in our present. We don't have to worry about our future because it's all been secure. We don't have to worry about the suffering that we go through in life because God is present through it and he's got a plan through it. And we don't have to worry about the sin that so easily traps us and makes us fall because he's dealt with it right there on that cross. The question is, how will we respond to that love? Will we embrace it? Will we let it move from that head knowledge down to our hearts? What does it mean to respond to that love? The Apostle Paul says, the love of Christ compels me to live differently. Should I continue to keep on sinning? No, because we should respond to that love and say, I want to live a life that looks differently. I may not be able to do it on my own strength, but what has God given me? He's given me the Holy Spirit. To be able to say no to those things. To live life that looks differently. The love of Christ compels me to share that great love with other people. If we've been transformed by that love, aren't there other people around there that need to know about that love? Are we sharing that with those around us? 
This is the year of servanthood. The love of Christ should compel us to serve others, to lay down our lives. The Apostle Paul goes on in Romans to say that there is nothing in this world that can separate us from the love of Christ. A couple chapters later, he says, because of that love, because of what I've done for you, offer your bodies back to God as an act of worship. Not just on Sunday mornings when we stand here and we sing songs, but every day of our life, respond and worship him and ask, how might I serve you? There's a college golfer at William Jessup. He came to William Jessup as a non-believer. Christian school, right? He gets recruited out of South Africa to come to California. He's all excited because he gets to go to California. And I met this guy through our ministry of College Golf Fellowship, and I started engaging with this guy. And, and he said, man, I am really out of my element. I'm at this Christian school, and all these people are like, you know, I go to the chapel services, and they're raising their hands, and they're worshiping God, and they're talking about God all the time. And all the classes talk about how we can glorify God in our business and all this stuff. And I just don't get it. This just doesn't make sense. He says, I came to California to hook up with as many girls as I could and to party as much as I could. And I ended up at William Jessup. What happened? And we started talking and we started processing and I started helping him explain what a relationship with God really looks like and breaking down some of the misconceptions of what he really had about the Christian faith. And we started opening up God's word and engaging with him. And I had a fundraiser for College Golf Fellowship one night and I had three other college golfers who were sharing their testimonies about how they had trusted Christ, how they had gotten in the wheelbarrow, so to speak, and received the free gift of salvation. And they shared their testimonies. And after that night, I happened to invite Gareth to let him share these other three guys who a year ago were in the same boat that he was. And that night, Gareth said, I get it. I get what that love was all about. I understand for the first time. It's not about me cleaning my life up. It's about me recognizing what Jesus did. And a week later, he said he went to his first worship service and he said, for the first time, I understood why these people were raising their hands and singing songs, giving thanks to God for what they had done in his life. I was giving thanks to God for what he had done in my life. He had changed who I was. We need to respond to that love. There might be people out there that have never even placed their trust in Christ. I don't know where you're coming from or what kind of spiritual background. Maybe you've been to church all your life and you've been really good and religious like I was. If you've never given your life to Christ, this morning you have a chance to do that. It's saying, I can't do it on my own. I need a Savior. I need somebody to push me across that tightrope. There's two ways to get to heaven. Be perfect, which I know none of you guys are, because I'm not either. Or place your trust in the one who was perfect and then gave up his life for you. We're going to close in prayer. And I want you guys just to take a moment silently just to do some work with God. And if you want to invite Christ into your life and accept his free gift of salvation, pray and say, Lord, I need you. I want to place my trust in what you did. I can't do it on my own. I want to receive your forgiveness and your justification. For the rest of you guys, pray and ask God to move from head knowledge down to your heart. Experience that love in a new way. Take a minute to do that and I'll close us.
Heavenly Father, I thank you for your great demonstration of your love. God, you gave us two-thirds of the Trinity. You gave us the Holy Spirit, and you gave us your Son to show us how much we are loved by you, what we are worth to you. You didn't start loving us after Jesus died. You loved us before he died, and that's why you sent him in this world. You didn't have to love us. You chose to. It was your great plan to show your great glory. Your love is not based on our performance. It's based on the performance of what Jesus did. Lord, thank you for that love. May we respond to it. May we feel it. May we understand that our emotions don't authenticate truth, but our emotions do authenticate our understanding of truth. Truth is truth no matter what, but may we feel it. In Jesus' name, amen. Bridgeway. Well, last week we had the opportunity to talk an awful lot about prayer and kind of why we do it and how we do it and a little bit about all the excuses that we come up with as to why we don't do it. And I think the thing we realized last week is prayer is something that we can all engage in, whether we're uh, older, younger, no matter what, uh, every age group can engage.